Accelerating Careers in Real Estate with Nick Carman. Brought to you by McDonald & Company. So welcome back to the Accelerating Careers in Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Nick Carman. And before we get started, I just once more wanted just to encourage all our listeners to continue sending in their voice notes and their questions to me. I thoroughly enjoy listening to these um, and get your chance to get involved. So this evening, I'm joined by Emma Osmundson, Chief Exec of 60 Bricks. Now, Emma was appointed the CEO in January 2023, having joined 60 Bricks from Exeter City Council. Raised in Wales, Norwegian roots, Emma's got more than 25 years in the construction industry and is one of the leading global voices in the development and delivery of low-energy, healthy, climate-resilient homes and buildings. So, Emma, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Nick. Great to be here. So, let's get started, shall we? Tell us how Chapter 1 begins. Oh, well, yeah, Chapter 1. I think it has to be kind of into the unknown, Um my career spanned in excess of 25 years now, and it's difficult, well, it's hard to believe sometimes. Um, but it started really from not really having a clear vision of where I wanted to go from a university or from a further educational perspective. Uh, my parents were very keen that I would follow my sister into accountancy, uh, but I certainly wasn't keen on that career route. And it was really through a mutual friend who went off to Reading to read uh, real estate that I kind of heard about surveying and the kind of the myriad of different career options within that, that discipline. So my sort of first chapter starts really very much into the unknown. And I registered to do a degree in building surveying at the University of West of England in Bristol. And that kind of started the journey that I am still undertaking today. Don't stop there. Let's say, let's get into it. <laughs> So um, I didn't know anyone who'd been a building surveyor. I had queried whether or not building surveying was my first choice or whether it was going to be town planning. And um, I kind of visited both faculties and I decided building surveying sounded a little bit more exciting. So um, I started a three-year degree and I was one of a very small proportion of females in those days um, undertaking that particular discipline. And during my summer holidays, I worked for uh, a local Bristol-based building surveying firm, uh, Tough and Ferriby and Taylor. And in exchange for driving lessons, I got to work with them during our, my summer term. And that's where I really began to learn what building surveying was really about. Really using the gig economy there. Yeah, but even back in those days, driving lessons in exchange for uh, I wouldn't say hard labour because I don't know how much use I was to them, uh, but certainly it was the early days where I was beginning to learn the practical fundamentals of what it was about to be a building surveyor. Well, come on, let's let's hear how this uh, graduate building surveyor then ascends to being the chief exec. Uh, well, you know, um, I managed to get through my my undergraduate days. I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't a particularly star performer at university, and I think partly because I think. I loved my degree. I loved the students I was studying with and I quite enjoyed the topic. But, you know, in hindsight now, it was probably um, a really good start for me, but not the ultimate direction of travel. And so my early sort of postgraduate days were spent in Manchester. Um, so I left Bristol. It was the time of um, the recession and jobs were very hard to come by, certainly for, for, for new graduates. But what some partners in those days gave me an opportunity 
And I joined a, a newly established Manchester office, uh, moved away. And that was really in at the deep end uh, because suddenly I was a building surveyor. And I certainly kind of learned what a building surveyor did and was expected to do. And it was it was tough. It was a hard couple of years, you know, learning the, the basics, understanding the discipline that you've kind of signed up to. But it was fantastic experience. I worked with some inspirational individuals and, you know, working with such a well-respected firm enabled me to to get through my APC and become a chartered surveyor um, when I returned um, back down to the West Country and moved back to Exeter. So I always sort of introduce my, my guests at this point and just, and just inquire, sort of, you know, what, what do you think you were learning about yourself now? I think I was learning at that time how, I mean, how little you know when you're sort of 18 and you have to make these major career choices and how, I guess, how diverse the discipline of surveying and property was and is. And really just how many opportunities there were and how narrow-minded I was when I was sort of making those career options um, at, at sort of comprehensive school. But also it really opened my eyes up, up to other opportunities and opportunities that looked more attractive to me. <laughs> so it kind of gave me the motivation to diversify my thinking, diversify my experience and kind of reach out and seek some mentors that perhaps could give me an insight into a wider uh, wider opportunities within uh, property and development. Uh, after about, I think, sort of three or four years uh, sort of post-qualification experience, I kind of reached a crossroads in my career. At that time, I was working for Chesterton's PLC, a multidisciplinary consultancy based in Exeter. And I was kind of based in the building consultancy team. And I suddenly came to realise that whilst everyone else sort of went out for client lunches, invariably my client lunches were spent probably midway through a building inspection, either down a drain or in a roof space or clambering around a big industrial shed. And normally one of the agents would tend to pick me up perhaps after the survey had been completed after their rather enjoyable lunch. And I, I kind of suddenly thought, well, do I really want to be doing this for the rest of my life? You know, it's, I'd learned a lot. I, I really enjoyed the discipline I was working within. But actually, there's only so many kind of building inspections and cold, damp days and dirty drains and dusty roof spaces that a girl can tolerate. And so I needed to make a decision whether we, I was to remain within the discipline of building surveying whether or not there was something better suited for me. So the benefit of hindsight, I mean, we know where, where you arrive, but I, like the listeners at this point, I'm sure will be very curious in knowing sort of what decision you made at that crossroads. Yeah, I mean, the crossroads for me was really reflecting on, okay, what have I learned? What are my key skills? And, and kind of, you know, what am I good at? And the great thing about building surveying is it gives you a great sound technical base. It sort of grounded me and really helped me throughout my my career when I sort of took that that change in direction. What I had become increasingly more excited by was the whole kind of development um, field and the, and the development sector. You know, the cut and thrust of 
development deals, development delivery, um, how you could extract value, how you could generate wealth, and how you could have much better business lunches than being a humble building surveyor with your pat lunch in the back of your car. So I took the decision to leave Chesterton's and I joined one of our clients um, that we serviced from Chesterton's as their development manager. And for me, that was quite a, a large step change and proved to be, I guess, the pathway that then led to where I am today. Well, let's carry on. I'm curious to see what the, st- the steps that come in between now and then. Yeah, so I left building surveying. I don't think you ever leave building surveying because, to be quite honest, a lot of the skills that I developed being a building surveyor sticks with me today. So building surveying kind of came with me, but I then started to get more involved with commercial development, industrial development, basically any form of development, any new build. And I was really privileged to join a private development company and and at a young age worked very closely with kind of the founding uh, chief exec of that company. And he was to prove, a, you know, a really critical mentor for me in, you know, relatively um, early years of my career. And I was, be able, I was able to work alongside him, delivering a, a number of different developments across the UK and overseas. And, you know, in between all of that, the company headquarter relocated to Guernsey. So, you know, my typical week would begin with being collected by private jet from Exeter, uh, from Exeter Airport to go to our office to then live the life of a developer. Oh, living the dream compared to that building surveyor with the sandwiches in the back of the car. <laughs> it was quite a contrast. Um, but, you know, you can't have too much of a good thing. And I stuck with that role for, I think, about three years. I really enjoyed it. I learned so much. And it certainly sharpened me to be kind of more the businesswoman that I you know, consider myself to be, more so than probably any other professional discipline. But, you know, I was very much working on the dark side of development. You know, we certainly were good at maximising profitability. But, you know, we did it at some costs, some costs to, you know, the nature of how we were developing, the way in which we were probably over maximising profit at the cost of perhaps some environmental considerations some social considerations. And I think, you know, probably without realising it at the time, because you know, you're just in the cut and thrust of your job. I think there was a nagging sensation at the back of my mind that I was increasingly moving away from my very kind of strong value-based focus on the way that I, I do work, really. Now, we don't often sort of associate, particularly sort of, you know, younger members of team as, as being so devout to those those principles. Yeah, so for me, I, I mean, I'm... I've been a committed Christian since uh, a young age, and that's always been kind of fundamental to who I am, how I behave, and increasingly, you know, how I do business. And I think, you know, whilst I was working in, you know, the highly highly commercialised, high-pressured development environment, I just knew my heart of hearts there was a better way of doing things. And so I did kind of... A remarkable step in many respects, in so much as I, well, I carried on development, but I identified kind of a new environment in which to develop in. And I left the private sector and I joined the Church of England. And I specifically joined uh, the Diocese of Exeter as their first in-house diocesan surveyor. 
Um, with the remit at that time very much to look at um, clergy housing, parsonages and the like. And over my time working for uh, Exeter Diocese, I, I couldn't help but that sort of commercial property development side come out and kind of modified my job description and um, help them to set up a trading company, start some speculative residential development and, you know, more or less pursue some of the wealth generation activities that I did um, in the private sector, but this time very much for um, a charitable aim. Do they always go hand in hand? I, I think they do go in hand in hand really, really well. But I think often both within the church and to a certain degree within you know the public sector where, where I'm currently based, there is an uncomfortableness when we start talking about wealth and profit generation and money. And you know, I've been really keen over over many, many years I've, I've been working in those sectors for people to become more comfortable, to get a better understanding about value creation and to understand creating wealth is not a bad thing. Uh, it's what we do with that wealth creation that is really important. And so for me, as a very sort of values driven leader, I'm really keen at creating wealth, but creating wealth that is equitable for as many people as possible. And ensuring that any wealth that we do create is invested in the best possible way. All right, Matt. Well, you've you summed it up quite nice there about sort of your experience. You you started off life then in advisory. You've made the move then to that sort of capitalistic private development company. You've brought those those talents then to an ecclesiastical uh, public sector view. And your current role, certainly in today, is, is firmly in the public sector. So tell us, what's, what's some of the similarities and maybe some of the differences for, for each of those, those different employers? I, I think the, the thread that runs through all of them is kind of values and how the values can be similar and how they can be quite different. In the public sector, you know, I very much consider myself to be a public servant and I'm here to, to serve the general public to act in their best interests. And so the outcomes of what I'm seeking to achieve are not dissimilar than if than when I was in the private sector. But it's again, it's how you how those outcomes are utilized and for whose benefit. Any other conflicts? Good question. Um, I think you're always conflicted in so much as you're trying to do your very best. And particularly in the public sector, there's too much that needs to be done and we can never please all the people all of the time. So you're always conflicted in terms of trying to get the very best outcomes in a development, but knowing that, you know, you're not going to be able to satisfy everybody's needs. But what we seek to do is perhaps look longer term and look at things over a, a pipeline or portfolio basis and kind of seek to iron out any glitches where, you know, Perhaps because of viability, you can't achieve, you can't achieve something on one site. But overall, you know, when you look back and reflect on your overall delivery program, you can clearly demonstrate that you've put the public interests about, you know, the first and front foremost, at the best interests of what you're seeking to achieve. Well, let's uh, just take a quick sort of date stamp. So we're up to sort of 2009, aren't we? And yeah. we're, just, we're just about to embark now uh, on the chapter where you join Exeter City Council. Yes. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about those about 
the role you had there, but but particularly around maybe some of the lessons that you're learning at this stage? Yeah, joining the public sector was, again, that was probably a career-changing opportunity. And, you know, joining a local city council, it was small in Exeter, suddenly I had an opportunity to really kind of ex- kind of experience what it feels like to be an influencer. So to have had enough, built enough confidence to be able to go into a new organisation and say, okay, I know you want this, but I think you need this. And to be able almost to recreate my role to deliver what I felt the council needed at that time. I'm going to stop you just stop at the moment now because I want to bring into some of our research. Now I spoke I spoke to someone who knew you quite well during this period of your time, and what was really interesting was that they echoed comments of people who've known you later as well in your career. What what word do you reckon came up the most in our research about Emma? <laughs> determined. Yeah, when determined definitely pops uh, pops up. Absolutely determined and resilient. The one that came up the most, the most common, was enthusiasm. <laughs> now, now this is what this is what one of the uh, the individuals. This is a, a direct quote. Right? When I asked them, sort of what what had they come to know about who Emma was, and this is what they what they how they phrased it: abundant enthusiasm, commitment, and vision. Now, vision I associate with with lots of great leaders, but not all great leaders have enthusiasm necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you a question then on, on that. And I just wanted to ask sort of how you maintain that enthusiasm or maybe how you inspire that enthusiasm, the people who work with. I, I think it's because I've always surrounded myself with amazing teams of individuals. And I tend to attract energetic people that kind of you can you can allow your energy to almost dissipate within them and it just becomes contagious. Um, so it just becomes self-fulfilling. You know, you surround yourself with great teams, you're energetic, you transfer that energy to them, it, coupled with their own energy. And suddenly, you know, my living mantra, which is be, re- be realistic, demand the impossible, you suddenly find that you can make the impossible possible. Well, let's get into that then, because that needs a lot of unpacking, am I right? How do we, um, uh, uh, how are you able to, to, to manage that during the time with Exeter? So Exeter was the start of that journey. So I made a kind of an internal personal commitment to myself at that time. You know, my background uh, growing up in South Wales was that I spent all my sort of holidays uh, principally staying with my grandparents. My parents were both working full time. My grandparents lived in, you know, solid fuel council houses in Swansea. I had, you know, fantastic holidays, um, but, you know, I used to watch the coal man come and deliver the coal during the winter, stoke up the fire and, you know, experience what life was like living on a large council estate. Joining Exeter for me was was a very much a watershed moment. I kind of made an, uh, my own personal commitment to start building uh, the very best council houses in the world. And that was the start of the journey started in Exeter and that's the journey that I'm still on and striving to achieve in a more um, upscale level because I've obviously achieved it but now it's about upscaling it so that we can get lots of great council houses and and, um, homes for those in need across London. 
we'll de- we'll come back to that. We'll definitely come back to that and um, uh, and see sort of what progress you've you've made on that. What I what I wanted to actually then and again sort of time specific about about the sort of the the latest sort of chapters of of Exeter. As you as you sort of transitioned now from from that operational management hands on, mm. you're taking on more responsibility. Your team is is swelling here as well. What were you, what did you learn about yourself? That I have this unbelievable reservoir of energy, and it always appears that the the harder you try, the more you can succeed, and that almost feeds that energy. It's 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 incredible. And I suppose at Exeter, it was all about pushing boundaries. You know, how, how do we not only deliver homes that literally cost nothing to heat? How do we you know, eradicate fuel poverty? How do we develop homes that enhance the health and well-being of those families that live in them? And how do we, you know, build homes? You know, this is 15 years ago that are climate ready. You know, we, we weren't even talking about climate emergencies in those days. And I think, you know, when you get stuck in and you, you find um, these incredible professionals that you surround yourself with that can make those dreams basically into reality, it is absolutely contagious. And, and I can't help sharing that, that enthusiasm and really trying my very best to help others to do the same. And, you know, in Exeter, we went from you know, developing, you know, the UK's first multi-residential passive house homes back in 2009 to you know, two years ago we we delivered the world's first passive house, climate ready, building biology compliant healthy leisure centre, and it was wonderful. And it's one hell of a journey, and it's a testament to Exeter's commitment and leadership at that time, but also their trust and their support for for myself to be given the space and, and the funds to just to go ahead and deliver in the very best buildings for um, a city. Okay. Those are lofty ambitions and some incredible results to be UK first, global first. What was the biggest challenge of delivering that though? What do you really face personally that you, you had to overcome? Oh, I mean, it's, it's come at a high personal cost without a shadow of doubt. I mean, as much as I've got lots of energy, it was incredibly challenging. You know, not everyone's aligned to your vision. Not many people like disruptors. Many people get quite insecure, I would say, jealous if you've got a pioneer in the room. And then, of course, the more you deliver and the more successful you are and the recognition you get for delivery, that can create quite a challenging environment in which to to work within. And, you know, I always remember, I think it was about eight years ago, I had an invitation. Um, somebody contacted me from New York and said, you know, hey, Emma, we've, you know, we've heard all about you. We'd like you to come to New York to speak at a conference about the, the amazing projects you're working on in Exeter on Passive House. And I literally laughed at them. I was like, I, no, I think you've got the wrong person here. And I said, no, 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 you know, you're doing some groundbreaking projects in the UK um, and we want you to come over to, to tell us all about it. And I remember going to see my <laughs> chief exec at the time at the council, Kareem Hassan, who's, who's been, you know, uh, again, somebody I identify as um, a really positive um, influence in my working life. And saying to him, you know, look, can I go? You know, they'll, they'll pay for everything. And he was like, you're too right, you go. 
And then returning from that trip was, I guess, a pivotal moment in my career at Exeter because suddenly I had this incredible external endorsement for what I was doing and it was on a global platform. And, you know, I think within those next five years, you know, I travelled the globe. I've been to New Zealand twice, Hong Kong, China, San Francisco, just kind of sharing the the magic that we were creating in Exeter. And I felt hugely privileged to do that. But, you know, returning back to Exeter each and every time after those trips was never easy uh, because it always awakened a bit of discomfort in those people that are public servants yet, yes, but, you know, were, were perhaps not achieving their own ambitions or making a difference within the public sector that they were working in. So, Emma, given everything you've achieved then, you know, under that umbrella of Exeter, you know, you're now the managing director of their, of their sort of their prop co, you're sort of globally recognised now in terms of what you've been able to achieve. Why pack it in and move across the other side of the country? Well, I think I'd overstayed my welcome in Exeter. I'm eternally grateful for the the UK first and and the real pioneering work that we did in terms of passive house, climate ready, healthy buildings. But maybe I just feared stepping away. I'd become too emotionally attached to the projects that we're working on. I was determined to see them through. Delivering the Leisure Centre had been a lengthy project. It had taken 11 years from inception. And I, you know, I'm a stickler for detail. And you, you know, you kind of almost feel that you've got to see things right to the end to make sure that you've, you've delivered perfection, when in reality, I didn't need to. And so I took the decision about 18 months before I did leave Exeter that I would look for a new challenge. And I didn't know what that challenge would look like or be like. And, and to be honest, I was a bit passive about it. <laughs> and I, I didn't really actively go out and look for new opportunities. And it, you know, it's one of the, it's like the, you know, often these events in your life. It was other people that sort of prodded me and prompted me. And I used to, I have a network of great local authority property companies, CEOs and MDs and the like. And I happened to meeting, be meeting up with them in Bristol. And they said, oh, you know, have you seen that opportunity at 60 Bricks? And I kind of said, well, yeah, someone's approached me, but, you know, I was being a bit ambivalent as, as ever. And they said, no, you'd be, you know, brilliant, really brilliant. It would give you that change that you, you, you need. And so coming back on the train, I got in touch with the recruitment company and just said, oh, you know, I know you sort of pitched this to me, but, you know, I'd like to find out a little bit more. And they said, oh, well, yeah, well, the deadline was, you know, yesterday. <laughs> And I was like, oh, okay. And I thought, well, fine, that's given me a get out, really. And I, as I travelled back on the train, they messaged me and said, look, you know, we're not going to be looking at submissions until the weekend. If you want to send something over to us tomorrow morning, you know, we'll have a look. And I literally, I, I, I think I took less than sort of an hour and just thought, okay. Um, I'd looked at the information. There was such synergy between what, Waltham Forest ambitions were and what they wanted to achieve and to a certain degree what I had already been achieving but really with kind of bells and whistles in terms of really catalyzing what we'd done in Exeter that it suddenly it was a job that I really wanted and 
so I put in a letter. I think I put my heart and soul into just saying, look, I know what you want. I know what you need. And I'm the person that can deliver it for you. And, you know, January the 3rd, I walked to their door as their new CEO. And I literally have not looked back. So given this is still quite fresh, then I think this is still a a relevant question. Tell us a bit more about then what your ambitions are then for for the role. I think uh, what I'm really keen to do is to really push the boundaries of all the kind of pioneering experimental work that we did in Exeter to really scale this up so it can have far wide ranging impacts, both within social housing and private sector housing. I'm really ambitious that in terms of creating a more equitable world, that, you know, we don't limit opportunities for great housing to just a small number of of households. You know, I'm really keen that we can influence the marketplace to show people that they deserve better, they should demand better, and building better is possible. We've proved it's possible. And not only have we proved it possible, we've also been able to demonstrate how we can do it and generate more wealth and more profitability in doing that, that way. All right, then, let me ask the elephant in the room then. The history of public sector development companies, development arms to local authorities, this could well be a poison chalice. It could, but I'm not daunted by the challenge. Yeah, we've we've all read about lots of issues that have been recorded in terms of local authority housing companies, some of them having to close, some of them being bought in-house, some of them failing. But actually, they're, they're very much minority. You know, we, we've got, you know, in excess of probably 200 local authority development companies across um, England and Wales. And in many of them are succeeding. And what you often find in this sector is that, you know, publicly owned private companies are pretty poor at marketing themselves, about raising their profiles and about really demonstrating the positive impact they're having. Now, it's, you know, it's not an easy time for anyone to be developing at the moment. And it is difficult when you are running a private entity that is owned exclusively by the public sector, because, you know, often there can be misalignments in terms of risk appetite, in terms of financial capability, particularly in terms of skill base. I mean, within the development companies I operate, we've got highly skilled, highly professional individuals that have come from you know, the private sector, as well as from um, the housing association sector. And often, you know, we are operating a business and trying to communicate with a shareholder that has had quite an institutionalised, you know, experience of just delivering public services in quite a prescribed way of delivery. Often it can be a challenge to ensure that you've got the right alignment in terms of what the ambitions of the shareholder and the council are and what the ambitions are for the uh, local housing um, property company. And there's a lot we can achieve, but often public sector is stymied by very lengthy governance. It can be stymied by a lot of bureaucratic processes. Uh, it can be stymied by local politics you know, a different appetite for risk. These are all challenging things to overcome. 
So running a, a local authority devco is far from easy, but I think, well, I passionately believe that we are part of the solution. And the challenge that we need to do is ensure that leaders within the public sector understand the capabilities of their devcos and they give them the right governance and freedoms in order for them to be servants to serve the public sector and deliver the solutions that they they desperately need. We need to help the public sector move from some of the crisis positions that they're in, particularly in terms of expenditures relating to you know, older person's accommodation, young person's accommodation, homelessness, temporary accommodation. You know, part of that solution is the DEVCOs. But we need to bring closer alignment so there's a better understanding how we can both mutually work effectively together to deliver some of these solutions. Okay, I'm, I'm going to take a back seat now as we've got another question from our audience. Hi, I'm Chanel. I would like to ask today's guest, what's one lesson your job has taught you that you think everyone should learn at some point in their life? Great, great question, Chanel. I think I'm, I think I'm old enough now and experienced enough to be able to, to pinpoint that. I think from, from my perspective, I think you really need to have an understanding for your own reason for being. You know, the reason you get up in the morning, you know, what is your sense of purpose? And I think what my career to date has shown me, and it's not been through, you know, wanton arrangement, it's been a degree of serendipity, is how I've got to that point where I'm sort of bringing together my passion, my profession, my vocation and my mission. So, you know, what I love to do with, you know, what I'm good at, with what I think the world needs, uh, and finally with what something, you know, what somebody will pay me for. And that's really given me the sense of purpose. I mean, the Japanese call it ikigai. For me, I just think it's reaching that that state of of, of everything in, interlinking and just falling into place. So I think, you know, my advice to anyone is take five minutes out of your day and just think about, well, you know, what is my purpose? You know, what do I want to really get out of bed to do? And I'm really, really fortunate i've found out what i want to get out of bed to do and i do it every day so given we're approaching the sort of the the first anniversary what's been the biggest challenge so far of your career at 60 bricks uh, other than finding my way my way around the tube system <laughs> um that's a really good question i had a real curveball this summer which just came out of nowhere and I re- was returning back from Belfast where I was uh, speaking at a conference and I was in London and I found a lump. And um, in July, I was diagnosed with uh, pretty invasive breast cancer. And so I have joined 60 Bricks. I got through my probation and I'm suddenly having conversations with my board to say, look, I feel fine. I'm loving my job and I'm, you know, we've, we've got a new direction of travel for the company, um, but I'm sick and I'm going to have to go through a pretty intensive treatment plan for the next six to nine months. It, it's not something I project managed, but it's something that I'm managing at the moment and, and it's going good. It's going okay. Glad to hear. Really glad to hear. Emma. Um, I don't, I don't know what questions to ask 
really based based on this. But I, I do think, you know, the more the more we all talk about this, given it can affect so many of us, what would you what would you say for the advice? Anyone anyone who unfortunately has has a similar um discovery or diagnosis during full time work, you know, what would you what would you give them advice for someone who's going through it now? now? Yeah, yeah, it's tough. I mean, you know, nothing prepares you for these sort of life events. But, you know, what I've come to realise is if you're in the right organisation with the right values, you you know, you will be cared for. You know, I feel hugely supported by my board, by my, my team, my colleagues and by the council. And that's enabled me to continue working full time. I work remotely at the moment because I'm immune suppressed but you know I'm really keen to be able to demonstrate to my team that we can accommodate people's disabilities we can accommodate people working in different ways and actually when we all come together and support each other we can achieve some amazing things and I don't see my prognosis as negative Um, I think it's another exciting chapter of my life and it's been wonderful to have an opportunity in your living life to receive so much love and support prayers and assistance when you know often I'm and I usually run a mile I hate this that sort of stuff but it's been fantastic to be on the receiving end so you can live with cancer indeed people are living now for several decades with cancer And in the workplace, there is, you know, so much we've already done to accommodate cancer, but there's still more we can do. But I think by living through it, working through it, I'm keen to learn how I can become a more effective leader to support other people, you know, heaven forbid within my team, but, you know, within the workplace that will have similar health conditions. It's something that we can we can overcome and and we just support one another. Okay, man. Right. I'm going to have to wrap, wrap things up now, but I've got time for just one more question. And given what you explained to me about the variety of the people you've worked for in the different capacities you work for and the personal challenges you're going through as well, this one I think feels very pertinent. Has your opinion of success changed over time? Mm, oh, yeah, completely. <laughs> success for me is sort of moved from those heady days where it was all about your own personal achievement you know your personal success you know becoming a chartered surveyor you know furthering your your your, your sort of postgraduate education etc cetera, etc cetera, getting the job getting the bigger jobs whatever for me now I measure my success and it, and it sounds really boring but I measure the success on the kind of performance of what I've built performance of the buildings but the impact of those buildings and those place-making communities you've created in terms of the lives of individuals and I I take so much pleasure in meeting people that you know their lives have just personally been transformed because they can afford to live in their homes they're comfortable their health conditions and life chances have improved Um, and for me you know that's the measure of success and it gives me so much pleasure well emma on that on that really positive note 
I've got to wrap things up, but thank you so much for sharing this story and uh, sharing the lessons you've learned, really diving deep into some of the sort of personal challenges as well. I can't thank you enough. And I'm no doubt sort of our, our audience would, uh, would echo the exact same sentiment. Thanks, Nick. It's been a pleasure.